I want you to open your Bibles once again to Ephesians chapter 4. We won't need to linger there just to introduce probably our final message in this series on growing unto full stature. It mentions those words in Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 13. God has said that he has put in the church specially gifted men, not men that are better than anybody else. It's just men that are ordinary and normal, but with something from God that enables them to do something that you can't learn to do. Are you with me? This is a gift. Apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And he says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, which is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You can't read that, even a casual reading, even a Sunday school reading of that. You have to stop and think that our mission, among all the things that everybody says we ought to be doing in this world, you can't get past this one first. Because the whole reason for God bringing forth his church and putting ministry gifts in the church and all that goes with this church, he said, is so they can grow up into Christ in all things, nothing less than the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we won't be like children anymore, tossed to and fro by everything that comes down the pike, every wind of doctrine. Then he says in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love that we may grow up unto and into him in all things. That's easy to read and go on past it. You don't remember, you don't think about it. But when you read it or you think about it, it's quite an assignment that God has given to us to grow up unto him in all things, to live as he lived, to walk as he walked, to love as he loved, to believe as he believed, to have the kindness like he was kind. Everything that was about him, we should aspire to be like ourselves. God projected in Jesus the kind of man he wants us all to be or the human being he wants us all to be. And while none of us can do that on our own, he has equipped us. He said so in this same chapter in verse 12, the equipping of the saints. He has given us everything we need to be like that. Jesus was an example for us to what? Follow in his steps. The whole focus of the church is to be on Christ. It's not on outward things that we like to take praise in and be prideful about, but it's about Jesus, the whole thing. It's about Christ, to be like him in all things. I've said a lot of things about it, but tonight I want to finish by asking a question. How can we tell then if growth is such a premium in the church? We ended last week by saying, and fruit bearing. We're here to bear fruit. Remember that principle? of bearing fruit, that Christ in you is like a seed. You're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of the incorruptible seed, the word of God. And then we looked in Luke chapter 8, verse 11, it says that when the sower went forth sowing the seed, he said the word that he sowed is the seed. Obviously, just by natural thinking about planting and seed bearing and fruit bearing of seeds, 
you cannot help but think that if he sows a seed, then his desire is for that seed to germinate in the ground and then to come forth and reproduce itself. You plant one little grain of corn, you get a whole ear of reproductions. Fruit bearing is reproducing the original. It's bringing forth in you Christ. Paul said to the Galatian church, man, I'm concerned about you all. I labor for you. I pray for you and I labor for you until Christ be formed in you. You've got to let that happen. He won't force himself on anybody, but he allows something to happen. And if you're willing, he will cause that birth to take place and it will begin to produce fruit. He must increase, we must decrease. Two things are said about fruit bearing. James chapter one, he says, count it all joy when you encounter divers trials. Let's just for the sake of this right now, call it tribulations, difficulties, hardships, things that make you want to quit. Things that make you want to just, oh, no, I, I, no, no. When you begin to encounter those kind of things, the purpose behind them is to produce patience, endurance. Count it all joy when you encounter divers' trials, knowing this, knowing what? That the trial of your faith produces endurance. Obviously, if you have faith that something that God has shown you that he wants you to have faith for, and instead of it just coming to pass, like, well, I just believe, and there it came. Sometimes it lingers, and it seems to be distant, but you've got to hold on. That's what patience is, because patience is one of those things that develops a character of a human being. You'll never be fruitful unless you're patient. Another better word for patience is endurance. And you will never bear fruit unto God, what he wants you to do, until you're willing to endure everything that tries to get you to quit and give up. And then in James chapter 5, it says that those who bear fruit, the seed on the good ground, was those who hear the word with an honest and good heart and bring forth fruit with patience. If patience is required for fruit bearing and tribulation is required for patience, would you have to have tribulation in order to be patient? Or you just go through life like this? <sighs> no, you, you only struggle when something is trying to get you to let go. That's when you really have to engage your enemy. So if tribulation is required for patience in James 1, and patience in Luke 8 is required for fruit bearing, then it's obvious that many are unfruitful in this life because they will not endure testing. How can we ever be and become, I'm talking about the mass of Christianity in America. How can we ever become all these things and what we're reading in the Bible that's been there for ages if we turn our head, ignore it, and do something else? Nobody likes to strive. Nobody likes to struggle. Nobody enjoys difficulty. Nobody. Nobody enjoys long, dark nights and months in which you struggle with financially or physically. Or Nobody likes that. Nobody wants that. Nobody seeks that. But you'll never really understand or know how really good and wonderful and gracious God is until you have to give it your very best shot to receive what he's got. Remember Hebrews, he said, you have need of patience so that after you have done the will of God that you might receive what was promised. You've got to hold on. It's worth it. Because what is being formed in you is a Christ-like character that will not turn back 
will not give up. Because you remember Hebrews 10, if you give up, it's perdition. So once you put your hand to that plow, you got to leave it there. Now, our identity with Christ is seen in the fruit of our life. If we're growing, there's fruit being produced. If we're growing, fruit is coming. Now, we can be busy without growing. You can preach the best sermons, be a nationally known book writing, TV personality preacher, have more experiences than anybody you know, and never grow. I said that to a preacher last week. I don't think he ever thought of that in his life. You can be the busiest, most sought after, whatever, famous, noted person, preacher, missionary, evangelist, and never grow. Now you're busy, you're preaching and you're teaching, you're doing things. You're probably benefiting a lot of people. But that doesn't mean that personally your relationship with God is increasing. There's a reason Jesus said to a lot of people, I never knew you. But Lord, we did this. Lord, we cast out demons. Lord, we had great miracles. Lord, we had a tent full of people. And he said, I never knew you. And somewhere in looking at things like that and begin to think about it, you begin to make the connection. It's not your sweat that God wants. It's your heart that he wants. He wants your heart. He wants you to show by those long, quiet, and difficult struggles that he means more to you than, than freedom from whatever you're going through. He is worth whatever price you have to pay and your willingness to do that. This is who he's looking for. For such, he says, that serve our Lord and not themselves. And this is what he wants. Now, tonight, there has to be a way that we can determine if we are growing. If I'm not growing, I need to. Again, I can stand in this place, been here for a long, long time now, and doing all the things that I'm doing doesn't mean that I'm growing. Getting sermons doesn't mean you're growing. Many preachers use the Bible to get sermons. They know what people want to hear, so you say that in some clever and acceptable way, and people like that. But you're feeding other people. You're not really growing yourself. I don't know how else to say that. It's just been a revelation in this particular series about that, about how easy it is to go through life religiously busy and yet never developing spiritually. We learn how to do things, and that's as far as it goes. Let me give you some signs tonight or ways to show and test yourself to see if you're growing. The first one I want to bring up is hunger. Growing people are hungry people. I got in a car up in Brother Ides many years ago, and we were going to a meeting that evening, and one of the little kids was coughing. And I said, he got the victory? And she said, as long as he eats well. She didn't care if he's blowing his nose and all that, as long as he was eating well, because eating well is a sign that you're doing well, that you're healthy, you know, that you're doing okay. It's when they quit eating and they don't want to do anything anymore that, you know, you have to think of it in terms of something else. But this little fellow, as long as he was eating, she wasn't concerned about it. You see, it's spiritually the same thing with us. We may go through trials and our nose may be running spiritually. But if we're hungry, God will feed us. And in the feeding, all the other things will come. But you've got to be hungry. You can't just listlessly attend meetings because you're supposed to and call it hunger. Because a person who is hungry will be here because they want to be here. 
They will be here with a word. They will be here with a prayer. We'll get to that in just a moment. There will be this urgency. I don't mean just desperateness, but I mean just, you know, God put me where I can grow. I can learn here. I can hear the word here. I can grow. I don't have to be compared to anybody else here. I don't have to be like somebody else. I can just focus upon the Lord and I can hear the word and I can grow. So you don't have to try to get me to come to church. I want to be here. I attend with anticipation. I pray that when I get here that God will feed all of us, but especially, Lord, find me with a hungry heart searching for more than I have. Because like that little phrase in the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. In the truest spiritual sense of that verse, if you have tasted and you have found him to be like honey in the rock, and that was a wonderful experience, and the effect of it was, boy, you just... Everything in your life is changing. You'll want more of that. And nobody can keep you from finding more of it because you want it. And the Bible says if you seek, you're going to find. But the people who seek are the people that are hungry. When hungry people get to where God teaches them, they pay attention. There's no daydreaming because you really came to hear what God has to say. We'll fellowship after a while. We'll talk about something else after a while. But right now for this One hour and what is it, 13 minutes. But we're here for that reason. That's the main item on the menu. We do other things. We fellowship, we sing, we praise and give testimonies. But the main course is the word of God. Remember Jesus said to Martha, he said, Martha, Martha, only one thing is necessary. And that's your baptismal certificate. He said, one thing is necessary, and that's what Mary has chosen. And where was she? She was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, when he's through talking, we'll fix it. But if he's going to talk and explain things, wow. How many of you know that if Jesus came in here tonight and shared with us the same sermon, the greatest sermon, the greatest teaching lesson ever given in life, the road to Emmaus, remember that? When Jesus talked with two fellows on the road to Emmaus and began at the very beginning of the Bible and went through the entire Bible and showed them where Christ was. Wow, you couldn't make tapes fast enough. The whole world would bow, I guess. Some people would. What a message. Well, he doesn't have to be here teaching because Jesus will tell us whatever we need to know. Again, through ordinary vessels, I can say a word that has nothing to do with what you're thinking, but God can take that word and make you think about something I didn't say, and he can inspire you to see it in a way you've never seen it before, and you say, praise God. Now, we may want to take the credit for that, but we had nothing to do with it. I said, blah, 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 and you heard praise God forevermore. It's just the fact that you're there, and there is an anointing in the room, and God will feed your hungry spirit wherever he puts you. Now, I believe that. If he puts you where they believe the Bible, I believe he will feed you in that place. Because you see, a hungry person, a hungry Christian, one who really is growing, really wants to understand. I really want to know because I can't really do what I'm hearing unless I understand what he said. That's why teaching is more important than preaching I think of preaching primarily as a time of exhortation and encouragement 
or as a time of enlightening a sinner about his condition. But teaching is only for Christians. The natural man understands not the things of the Spirit. So teaching is to take those of you that have professed Christ as your Lord to bring you together and begin to inform you about what God wants from you. It's not a time to be mad at the preacher. It's a time to measure what the preacher said with whether or not the Bible says it. Don't believe anything because I said it. But if the Bible says it, believe it because God said it. Now, the preacher brought it out, but God said it. Because we are here to learn. And if anybody says, oh, you folks have learned enough, we have never learned enough. As long as we're alive, somebody can still learn us some more. We can always be taught. If we are hungry and if indeed spiritually we are growing and becoming more of a man than a child. Because the Bible shows both of those in the Bible be no more like children but growing up into him. Now, when growing ceases, when you cease to grow your interest in spiritual things will begin to cease. Now, here's what happens when you lose interest in spiritual things or you're not growing anymore. The religious system, and I grew up in this. The church I grew up in my whole life would probably qualify. I'm talking about good people, a nice place. I'm not talking about anything about the people, not superior to anybody, nothing like that. I'm just saying the system, the religious system that I was in was a system that had little to do with teaching except it was relegated to Sunday school and only a third of the church went to Sunday school. So only a third of the people were interested in teaching. Now, maybe they went to Sunday school like, well, they get a pin every year. If you go 50 out of 52 Sundays a year, you qualify for a year's pin. Mrs. Taft had pins that would go from here, Sunday school pins all the way down here. She had 50 of them, I guess. You almost have to hold them, walk around, because they just swing around. My mother had like 12 or 13 of them. I had three or four. But my reason for going to Sunday school class was not to learn. It had nothing to do with learning anything. It was to get that Sunday school pin. Now, how flesh-centered is that? If what I'm doing in the system is to gain the benefit of the system, the religious system, and I get what the system offers if I do what the system wants, and then I'm recognized by the system as being one of theirs, when I get older, the system will put me into its hierarchy. I will get to be the assistant superintendent of the Sunday school classes. My mother was the superintendent. <laughs> I probably, if I keep attending all the time, I'll get a Sunday school class which means that you're part of the system. You know, so you cuss and drink and maybe mess around a little bit. At least you go to church, so therefore you qualify. Has nothing to do with growing. There is little, if any, interest, very few exceptions. It's not about growing. It's not about advancing ourselves spiritually and becoming the kind of people that God wants us to be. No, the whole system has to do with works. Don't we say when we're Christians and we get together, I mean, every now and then, if nothing is going on, don't we say we ought to be doing something? Well, we ought to do something. I mean, we're Christians, aren't we? We ought to do something, so let's buy it and build it. I've been in that too. This is all we got. 
It's the only thing we need to do. Borrow and build. And the more we get busy involved in that, the more we begin to see that look what we are doing. And we begin to admire our efforts and the efforts of each other. We may fight over what color the carpet's going to be or what color we're going to paint it or what color this or that is going to be. But we look back when it's all over, the town drives by, everybody drives by to get a new building to look at it. And what you want them to do is go, whoa. I was in a church building the other day that a friend of mine had built. They have, I think, 40 members in this church. I think this building, the guys with said about $700,000, $750,000 so far. This place was that. If you could do that and it's paid for, fine. As long as you're not building it for yourself. Amen. Amen. If your focus is on that building and you've got this, look what we've done. After all, in one of the popular religious cliches that we're active in the Lord, active in your church, you ever heard that? Are you active in your church? Oh, yeah, they'll say, oh, yeah, so-and-so's a good person. Yeah, they're active in the church, which means they attend, they participate, and they do things. But most of the time, it has absolutely nothing to do with growing. Because, truth be known, most of those folks would not come and sit for an hour and any minutes to hear somebody teach on something that has theological flavor to it because they're not interested. You see, you go do all your study and all your little teaching stuff. I'm going to get out here and do something for God. Because the person at the end of their life feels like they have somehow merited eternal salvation because look at all the hard work they did and all the sweat and the labor that they gave towards something for God. And they stand before God spiritually no different than the day they were born. They're still little babies. They can still only tolerate the first principles of the oracles of God. If it's anything more than milk, I don't want it. If you get into meat, a little heady stuff, oh, no, I don't want to hear all that. I didn't come here to have my brain challenged. I come here to feel better about what we're doing. See, there's no hunger in that. There's nothing hungry about that. And again, maybe you can do all of that with great hunger and growth. Praise the Lord for that. And I haven't been in all the places in this world... I'm only the judge of what I have seen and heard for the last 40 years. I really don't want to be a part of a system, a religious system that feeds off of carnality and self-interest. I really don't, and I don't think you do either. I thank God tonight that for us in this congregation right here, it's been very simple. We've never had much. We've never had anything to show anybody in the community. We can't show them what we're doing by anything we meet in. We can't brag about or boast about or point to anything that we're known by. And they can't see what's going on in your heart. They can't see how you begin to love your wife or your children or the neighbor next door and how hard you're trying. They can't see that. There's nothing here for anybody to praise. You know, people want to be noticed. I think it's just natural for that to happen. But teaching is no longer important, but visual things are. I can see it. That's why Israel wanted a king. They came to Samuel and they said, we want a king. 
He said, God is your king. Yeah, but we want one like the Amorites and the Moabites and Havites and Jebusites and Canaanites and Arabites. We want one like all of them. We want to see something. We want to look at something. He said, all right, you get you one. You wish you hadn't, but I'm going to give you a king. Constantine in the 4th century, early in the 4th century, you know, he supposedly became a Christian, but he couldn't settle for meeting in this. So he had to add all the clothing and the robes and the pomp to it because they wanted to be fit for a king. It's all about me. But people loved it because you no longer are searching for God as much as you are enjoying the feeling. Just the feeling. I can still remember that old church in Charlestown, and the sun would always come through the back there, through the windows. They faced east. Those stained glass windows. It was pretty. It was. When we got in the new building, we didn't have all of that. And I thought, uh. But you see, it's not buildings. It's not paint. It's not sweat. It's your heart that God wants. When the high priest went in before the Lord on the great day of atonement, one thing he didn't wear was wool. Wool make you sweat. He wore linen. That's the coolest garment they had. I mean, it was linen. He's not coming in here with human effort. You're coming in here at my invitation and not because you're trying to win my approval. Listen, when you lack hunger, when you're not really wanting more than what you've got, you will eventually gravitate to those men lie in wait to deceive verse. Remember that? You'll be tossed to and fro because you will dismiss your need for growth and begin to seek things to do because I can see something. I feel good about what I'm doing and where I am. Except that when you stand before God on the last day, there's not much of your life was evidencing him. You were a cuss and ranting and raver when you came to the Lord and he forgave you and then you cussed the rest of your life. Nothing really changed. But you were a noted member of the church, a pillar in the church because of your busyness and activity. So if you're growing, you're hungry. Second thing, if you're growing, you'll be a meditator. That's not exactly a right word, but meditation is. Meditation, because what you're hearing, you must stop and think about it. Sometimes you hear things that God just drops into your heart, a wonderful nugget of truth, maybe about yourself or about him, but he'll drop this truth into your heart. You may not hear any more of the sermon that night. You'll hear the sound of words, but the only thing you're hearing is that moment that he sees your attention. You start thinking about that. Now, this process of thinking or pondering, we call meditation. Would you turn to the first Psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalms number one? You see, when God speaks, you have to listen. And again, you may come to listen to what I'm saying. That's all right. I pray for I get out here that I'll say what God wants you to hear. Now, sometimes I wonder if it ever works. But it obviously does. Sometimes I wonder, oh, Lord, I pray that these folks will hear not what I'm saying, but they'll hear what you're saying, and that nobody will go home without hearing something 
that every human being in this room will be affected by something. And some nights I think, ain't nobody heard nothing. Nobody heard nothing, nobody listened. There were faces out there, but nobody was home. But see, I know that isn't true. I know that isn't true. It's just a little crybaby time, that's all. <laughs> Psalm chapter 1, he said, blessed are, and he mentions those three times, blessed are those who do not walk with, who do not sit with, and who do not stand with, and so forth. Scorners, scoffers, sinners. But blessed is a man whose delight is in the law of God, the word of God, and in his law, what does he do? You know why he does? You know why they meditate in the word? One writer years ago said, a good picture of what meditation is, is to picture a cow on a nice warm day under the shady tree chewing her cud. Cows have a lot of stomachs, I think. We undid one the other day and that was all stomach. Every bag in there was a stomach. But she will kind of bring up what she's eaten. See, we eat now. We're eating now. We're feeding on the word. And then later on, you get home in the morning, tomorrow afternoon, you got to go. You start getting all those good juices out of it. See, you start meditating on the word. And you say, now that was good last night, but it's better this morning. Meditate. It's a wonderful picture because, again, you eat and you read a verse and you go through this. You do your little study thing and whatever, your Sunday school lesson. And you go through all that. But that's where it is for a lot of people. But when you're still keen on that because you say, you know, I don't fully understand how to make that application to my life yet so I can be a doer of the word, not just to hear. So you start looking at that and God brings it back up and you start chewing on it. You start meditating. You start pondering. Now, let me tell you how God rewards that. God rewards that by making you to bear fruit. Because this is a part of that fruit-bearing principle we didn't get to last week, but we can add it tonight. He shall be like a tree. Doesn't it say that? A tree planted by the water. And it says two things about it. It bears its fruit in its season, and its leaf never fades. It's always living and vital. At no time does it look like it's dead or dying. It's always vital because it's always got its roots in the water. And this is a totally a picture of, in his law, he doth meditate day and night, he shall be. Those who meditate in the word, who ponder it, who want to get out of it, all that God has for, they shall be. Now, whether we are or not depends on what we do with the word, but here's the promise, they shall be. And then not only says all of that, what's the blessing? They shall be like a tree planted by the water and so forth, bearing fruit. And whatsoever, whatsoever he doeth shall what? And the whole town will then begin to talk about you. You're robbing them poor people at that church. Nobody said I robbed anybody when there was 15 people in here. Poor soul. Then God blesses it. Then you're robbing them. Just because I meet all of you at the door and I get your wallet and take out my part of it and give it back to you. No, sir. He shall be like a tree planted by the water and whatsoever he doeth 
shall prosper. As a daddy, as a mother, as a cook, as a gardener, as a mechanic, as a preacher, as a businessman, whatever you do, if you put God first and seek to know him better than anything else, God says, whatever you do will prosper. That's part of that fruit that glorifies God is 2 Corinthians 1, where it says, all the promises are yes and amen to the glory of God by us. So God wants us to do it that way. Turn also while you're there to Joshua. Go all the way to the front of your Bible there, sixth book back. Joshua chapter 1. This word meditate there shows you what advantage, what blessing is involved in Joshua 1 and verse 8. Now here's God speaking to Joshua how to be successful with him, God, and with man. Didn't Jesus find favor with God and man in Luke chapter 1? All right. He said, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Here's why. That you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. That is to be faithful. For then, this is your reward from God. Then you shall make thy way prosperous, and then you will have good success. If I were to ask you tonight, how many of you would like to have good success in this brief life on this earth? Surely all of you would hold your hand up. Yet there's such evidence of not many people having good success that I would have to say the problem is right here. See how rude I am and, and mean now we're getting? God would not say this, watching over his word of performance. God would not say that and then not do it. The only reason it's not working is because we don't meet the conditions. Day and night, meditate in the word. You got to have that word, honor the word. Well, if you're hungry and you're growing, you'll want it, like I said in the first point. And once you get it, you start reading it and then you start pondering it. Whew, boy, you start thinking. And then it's many times, it's in that quiet time in your life, that early morning, late evening, noon, whenever it is you choose to engage the Lord in private or in prayer, because folks, prayer isn't always talking. Prayer is time with the Lord, whether you're quiet or whether you're reading quietly and asking him questions or just meditating and giving God that chance to put in your mind thoughts, ideas, or direction. It's just stopping what you're doing so that you can relate to God and prayer will include words. But prayer wasn't intended for you to be sitting there all the time and just you doing all the talking. Sometimes it's like saying, Lord, I don't know what to do about this. I got this problem, Lord. You said in the Bible here, in Psalms 32, 8, that you will instruct me and teach me in the way wherein I shall go. You will guide me with your eye upon me. That's all I've got. I don't know anything else to turn to now. Now, I don't know how you all pray. and Some people only believe they're praying if they're in some particular position. But I think actually you can pray all day long. Because you can have your mind on the Lord all day long and he can talk to you all day long. A lot of people regulate prayer to a specific something that is in a certain place, in a certain posture and all of that. Prayer is communication. It's communion with the Lord. Koinonia. 
It's communion. It involves meditation, or I would say prayer is a part of what meditation means. Pondering. It's talking out loud to the Lord. I do it all the time. I know I'm going to get caught one of these days. Somebody's going to say, you all right? It's just there's something to it. God is good. I've never heard an audible voice. I've never yet to this day been in quiet time before the Lord and sometimes just quiet for a long, long time. Like, be still. That's scriptural. Don't know what to say. And even when I am talking, I'm thinking, just be quiet. Quit talking. Just be still, would you? I've never heard his audible voice. I'm sure if I heard somebody out loud talk to me and when I was alone by myself, I don't know what I'd do. I might run through a wall. I don't know. I don't know what I'd do. I've never had that experience. Very few men have ever had that without fear coming on them. Falling at his feet. This happens all the time in Scripture. But I think God speaks in ways that you understand. The impression you have in your heart. The idea that comes to your mind. We're not too sure about things like that because we didn't hear that. We just thought we made that up. But be still a little longer. He might add another thing to it. Like this or like that. Why don't you call so-and-so and tell her this? And then you'll think, you know, I never thought of that before. It's God speaking to you. He is not only speaking to you, but he is training you how to know him. That is for direction in your life. We're so busy. Do I say that every week? We're busy. We want all the benefits of a hookup with God. We just don't want to take the time to hook up because we wonder what we're missing while we're in there with him. Meditation includes time just to be still before the Lord, just to be quiet. One of the greatest verses in the New Testament, sections of Scripture, four verses in the New Testament for preachers. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4 because it includes, this passage of Scripture includes meditation. And it's not anything difficult because all of us can do it. I don't know of a better, higher, more lofty verse of Scripture anywhere than this one right here. I don't know of anything. Verse 13, till I come, give attendance to reading, exhortation, to doctrine. Doctrine is teaching about the ways of God, who he is, his attributes, his desires, and so forth. Give attention to those things. Verse 14, you're called to do what you do, so neglect not the gift that is in you, which was given you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Verse 15, ponder these things. Don't take it for granted. Think about it. Ponder it. Meditate upon these things. Give yourself totally to them. Here's again that blessing that thy profiting may appear to all. He keeps adding that. Verse 16, take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine, the teaching. You personally continue in them, for in doing this, you shall save not only thyself, but who else? Now, let's stop here. Time out. Does that mean that if I am willing to do all of these things as God directs, 
and do it with my heart, knowing the benefit's going to be yours as well as mine. If I do that, what will happen to you? You'll be saved. That's not excluding your need to call on the Lord and be born again and all that, but it'll lead you to do that. If you come here hungry and God has anointed his word, you will hear something. You won't leave without having heard something. It may disturb you, it may bless you, but it'll always have something good in your life to advance you. And he said, if you give yourself to the study, just study the word, that's what you call it. I have more time to do this than all of y'all. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's why I don't have another job. I don't have time for another job. Wouldn't want one if you offered me one. You say, I'll give you a lot. I don't need any money. No, I don't. I don't mean I don't get any money and live on. I ain't after that. What I'm after is right here. Take heed unto yourself and to the teaching. For in doing this, you'll not only save yourself, but everybody that hears you. How do we say it in, around here in Kentucky? It don't get no better than that. We can't find it better than that. If at the end of this life, you go up to meet the Lord, you cannot... Do better than that. You can't. You couldn't live in a castle and with a million bars of gold lining the wall instead of wallpaper and do better than this. I couldn't either. The promise is wonderful. You not only save yourself, but all those that hear you. That implies, when you read all the rest of it that goes with it, that implies that your word will not only be a wonderful, soothing thing, but it'll also be a hammer. It'll be a sword. It'll be a two-edged sword that divides and cuts asunder and separates in your life what is flesh and what is spirit. It'll be like that. It'll locate you and it'll whack you upside your head. It'll beat you like a hammer. It'll be like fire. Jeremiah said, your word's like fire. Your word is like a hammer, he said. But everybody that responds to that word because God gave it, because the conditions were right and the anointing came, everybody that hears is going to be saved. I'm glad to be able to say that to you all. just want to make that good announcement. You all can be saved. All of you. Third thing, vision. If you're growing, you have vision. One of the questions you'll ask yourself is, when I get to the end of this road I'm walking down, where will I be? Where will I be? Where does this lead? Where are we going? This field that I'm in with this plow, when I reach the end of this furrow, where will I be? I read a story years ago where I got these ideas, and, and the story was, if I follow you, the people in the church talk about the preacher, if I follow you, where will I be at the end of this? Where are you leading us? Where are we going? Actually, I'm not anybody's Pied Piper. I'm obligated and responsible to tell you what the Bible says as best I can understand it. We could have a total dummy to preach. As long as it's anointed, we're all growing. Amen? So take heart in that. But a man has to have a vision of where he's going. I've been born again. I'm a Christian. I'm going back to my life now, my early life when I first got saved. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be tomorrow, but right now I know what I'm supposed to do. 
I'm supposed to learn and go to church and love and whatever I'm here, and I'm supposed to start doing it that way. Now, where I'm going, I'm trusting in God to show me. I've had people come up to me in my life. I remember in the other building over there we were in, right before a few people left, they came down, he said, where are we going as a church? Where are we going? And I said, well, there's a bunch of us. You're one of them. Where are you going? That wasn't what he wanted to hear. I don't know where everybody's going. I know where I'm going. I'm trying to make clear where I think God wants us to go, but you've got to find out for yourself. First of all, we want to go to heaven. You can amen that one. Heaven is the goal. Or we're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. Onward, Christian soldiers, towards the Zion's hill. I've been to Zion. Aren't y'all glad? I've been there. I didn't know I was ever going to be a preacher. The idea that one day I would pastor, I would have quit a long time ago. I didn't want to do this. I didn't. Honestly and truly, I didn't. I like the idea of traveling. But one day I realized in the heat of my travels and going at the heyday of all my goings, I realized that somebody told me, you're not growing. And I realized how fruitless, you may not agree with what I just said, but how fruitless all of that was because I was going nowhere. In the 18th verse, you don't have to turn to this either, of Proverbs 29, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no living revelation, the people are unrestrained. And in a spiritual sense, when people without a vision become unrestrained, they'll follow anybody and anything. They are candidates for deception. Every wind of doctrine. Because they personally do not know what they're supposed to do. It might be all you know right now. All you know is you're supposed to be here. You know God had a purpose in bringing you here. He had a purpose in saving you. He didn't need somebody to warm another chair up. But you got to warm a chair up in order to find out what's next. How long would it take you to find out what's next? How long did it take the Apostle Paul? It took him years. He just grew quiet in the desert and just studied and just quieted down. And years later... He began his apostolic ministry. But we're so eager. And when you get too eager, you'll commit an abortion. You'll bring forth something before it's time, and it'll fail, and you'll fall on your face, get discouraged, and you'll quit. That's one of the reasons it says lay hands suddenly on no man. Because you get a man in something before he ought to be into something, and it doesn't work right, he can't cope with it, doesn't know how to handle it, doesn't know how to come and go yet, doesn't know how to deal with things yet, and he fails. I've seen a book full of them in my lifetime. I've seen too many men that weren't called to preach, try to preach. They could preach. They could put two verses together and they could make a sermon. Had no pop to it. There's no anointing. It just doesn't work like that. But you've got to have a vision. You need to see yourself in light of what God is saying to you and then ask yourself, where do I fit in? What do you want me to do? Because a man who is growing wants to know that. Well, right now, I just want you to go to church and listen to what you're hearing and let me talk to you. Fine, I'm happy doing that. 
when the Lord comes, if he finds me sitting here doing this, that's all I knew to do, but that was my vision. You mean your vision is just to sit there and learn? That's all I know to do. We ought to get out and go and do something. You know what? I've seen a lot of get up and going and doing something with people that you can't get along with, people that won't pay their bills, they don't do this. They haven't grown an inch. I don't want to be like that. If I'd sit here until my hair turns white or turns brown again, <laughs> that's fine. I'm where I ought to be. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and I am content. And I'll leave the stirring of the pot to God. Let me tell you something. I'm not a prophet. Thank God. But the days we're coming into right now in this world, these are perilous times, more than what I just told you. The likelihood of disaster and nuclear thises and thats and nations really rising up big time against nation. We're in that day right now. I don't know how long the world will last because all it would take would be one big something to get started and they couldn't stop and then it goes chaos. That's why I pray for Israel because the whole world's against that little nation. I'm not, I'm for them. I'm Jewish, call me a Jew, inwardly anyway. And everything is really chaotic. It's never time for you to be more still than right now and wait on the Lord because the day is coming that direction will be given clearly to all of us. If it's any different than what we're doing now, he will show you because that's his business. It is God who calls. It is God who directs. It is God who anoints. It's God who equips. I am content to let him do that. But I want to know that I am seeing myself in light of what God is saying that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Some of you young folks are getting stirred. Something stirring in you. This passion for preaching or for the missionary field where there's so many lost people and yet so many hurting people that just a little boost will get them over the hill and they'll take off. And God will use you to do that. How do you know he will? Because he does. I'm not one to do all of that. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But if I keep listening, I'll be inspired by something. God will show me something I haven't seen. That's what I'm going to do. Another thing about growing. If you're growing, you're stable. You're stable. You're not likely to be thrown off course. Turn to 2 Timothy 1. I think you all know this verse, verse 12. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. For I know in whom... I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That is stability. A stable soul is one who is counting on God to do what God has said in his word, that God will keep him. That God will cause us to stand and not fall apart. What he said about Abraham in Romans chapter 4 and verse 21, let me read that. Well, it said in verse 21, he staggered not at the promises of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And it says, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Now that's what our faith is supposed to do for us. If we are a people of faith, this is how our faith affects us. Faith is not 
the name of the church I go to. It's not a Baptist faith, Methodist faith, Presbyterian. That's not what faith is. Faith is how we relate to God. It's you counting on God to do what he said. You can do nothing better. There's no greater thing that you can do that pleases God than that. Just living, yielding your life to God while you're alive, a living sacrifice, and making your life the will of God and doing what he said. That's what he wants. The life of faith. That's why we ought to preach on that at least every meeting or say something about it all the time because God seems like on every page of this book he says something about it. That what he had promised he was able also to perform. Are you convinced tonight that the promises that God has given you that he is able to do it? Well, you all say he is. Are you convinced he is willing to do it? See, an unbelieving church says, oh, yes, God is able to do. We've read about that in the Bible. He's done this. He did that. He parted the sea, created the world. Of course, God is able. So we say, well, then why don't you trust him? Why don't you count on God to do for you what he's also promised, the 8,000 promises in the Bible? Why don't you count on God to do that instead of living in fear about all these other things? Why don't you just take him at his word? They would say this. They wouldn't say it now, but they'll say it in Judgment Day because I'm not convinced he'll do it. I know he has done it. I'm not sure he'll do it for me. And then they write the book on faith, foolishness, or presumption. The book which says it is presumptuous for us to say that God will do what he said for us. Now that's foolishness. That's calling God a liar. Might as well say you're a liar. Who would say that? Unbelievers. Unbelief would. I know you said that, but I don't believe you'll do that. That's Psalm 78. All over again. God was angry with these people because they said, well, we know he did this and he did. Well, can he prepare a table in the wilderness? Can he do this? And the Bible says God was wroth or angry. And he judged his people because they questioned his willingness to do what he said. The Bible said Abraham's relationship to God wasn't casual. It wasn't occasional. It was all the time. And when God spoke to Abraham while having a fathering a child at 99 years old is a stretch. If Sarah was maybe 30, it'd, it'd be somewhat, he, uh, he'd, I could believe something, you know, sort of like that. But me being 100 and her being 90, I, but the Bible says Abraham considered not his own body, which was now dead. Didn't work right anymore. But with regard to the promise of God, he believed God. And he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but he gave glory to God. And in our verse there, that says that being fully persuaded that if Sarah's going to have a baby next year and I'm going to father the baby, then it's going to be like that. Because God is able. And if he's able, then all the hard part is up to God. The easy part is believing. That's all God wants. This is what makes us stable. To be stable means you're not easily thrown off course. You're not run over by things. You're attacked and you may go through this or that, but you won't give up. You hold fast. It's what we have to do.
And the underlying cause of our holding fast is that we're convinced that God will do it. That's why we endure, because we're convinced that he will do it. And we hold fast. Turn to 2 Peter 1. You've got to do this. This is the add to. You remember the add to's? Well, then find out what the add to's are. Add to. Verse 5. And beside all of this, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue. And to virtue, add knowledge. And to knowledge, add temperance. And to temperance, patience. And to patience, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if, and this is growth, we're talking about growth. If these things be in you and abound, they make you. Do you see that? Amen. They make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, has no vision, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, let's just say therefore, therefore, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and your election sure. For if you do these things, what does it say? What does it say? You'll never fall. Does your Bible say that? There's no reason for us to fall. We've got an outline right here. If we'll add to, this is the add to chapter. Do this, do this, and do this. And he said, we will never fall. Just like we are not of them that draw back into perdition. Hebrews 10, 39, he said, but we are those who believe to the saving of our souls. There's never a time in this life that a Christian is not required to believe. You hold fast your faith. First Peter 1, chapter 9 says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And Hebrews 10, again, we don't draw back to perdition, but we believe to the saving of our souls. We believe because we are convinced that God is able. And therefore, we are stable. He's able, we're stable. We could call our assembly the Able Stable Assembly. Everybody would have understood that. Next one is rejoicing. If you're growing, you're rejoicing. You can't help it. You rejoice in the shower in the morning. I hope you take one at least every now and then. You get in the shower and you rejoice. You rejoice in your shower. You rejoice in your shop. Rejoice driving down the road. You got a smile on your face. Your frown is upside down. You're smiling. You don't necessarily feel good. Haven't had special things happen good all day long. It's just the fact that what is in your mind that's occupying the central place in your hard drive is joyful. If God be for me, who can be against me? The joy of the Lord is my strength. I can do all things. Me. James Thomas and Ruby Absher's baby. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can. Oh, can I really? I said you can and I can. Therefore, I can. If God said I can, I can. Hallelujah, I say. Praise be to God. And then you find music that feeds this. 
I got one in my car now, hymns. I turn that thing on. If there's nobody around, I crank it up. I was at the traffic light the other day, and somebody had a speaker car, you know, boom, 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 boom. So I just turned mine up. I stand amazed in the presence. Let her go. They said, well, what's wrong with that man over there? What he said about me, I'm really thinking about him. What's wrong with you listening to that trash you're listening to? But anyway, excuse me. Growers are rejoicers. If you're growing, you're rejoicing. If you're not growing, you're probably sliding backwards. You won't stay long. If you're not growing, you won't last long unless you get in a program. But if you've been born again and you're growing, you'll do good. You know, you could include a lot of things. You could put a list of 50 of these things. But if you're growing, you have a desire to serve. You're in this world to represent God and his kingdom. You're a sojourner and a pilgrim, but you're also an ambassador. You'll see many people in your life who could use a little help. Jesus said in Matthew 25, have you done it under the least of these? People that can't pay you back, people that can't help you back, they can't reward you back. Just like when Paul was talking about going down to Guatemala, Paul Augustine, going down in Guatemala and you give these people and you help these people, they have nothing. And you begin to do things for them, their eyes brighten up. They can't give you anything back. They can't reward you for what you just did, but they're not supposed to. It's better to give than to receive. We'll get ours. How many of you know you'll get yours? God is not unrighteous, Hebrews says. God is not so unrighteous to forget your labor of love that you have ministered and do minister to his people. God knows what we're doing, but our life is a life of service. We're seekers and servers. I don't have to go somewhere and think of something to do. I'll find things to do in Shelby County. That person in the church who's having a hard time financially. I'm not. They are. So I have something to help them with. We got a jug back there. Our jug ministry to help people that need help. You know, we may not be able to go to everybody who needs help and help them, but we can put money back there and make sure it gets to people that have needs. That's the kind of people we are. We're helpers and servers. Humbling ourselves before each other. Submitting ourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord. Putting another man's needs, as Corinthians says, before your own. It's living not for yourself anymore, but for Christ. And to be prompted by the Lord to help somebody and give somebody and serve somebody and sacrifice something of your life for the good and the betterment of somebody else is like doing it unto the Lord. And he that lends... Unto the Lord. You know what God says? He'll pay him back with interest. You know, let's just end this little series by saying this. We have an opportunity as Christians to grow. Not to become self-centered braggarts, knowing more than somebody else because we don't. But what we know should point us to Christ. To where I am here because of Jesus and where I am going is because of Jesus and what I do is because of Jesus. May it all be at the end when it stand before him. May he say, well done, thou good 
and faithful servant. Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to bless your word to your people. Make us to understand and to know what you've said the way you want us to understand it. May grace continually be with us and lead us to be gracious and merciful toward others. Thank you for the privilege of this high call that we have from you of coming out of a dark place into a place of light, of taking a ragged light that was worth nothing and pouring treasure in it and making it worthy of heaven in the last days. Thank you, Lord. Thank you tonight. Thank you for all of that. I ask you to bless these people before whom I stand. Those out there who listen to this in other places, may the richness of this word and the wonder of your spirit rest upon all of them until we go home. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.